Welcome to the Fury Theory Podcast, brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means excellent for business. I'm joined by my EFB colleagues, Adam Belmar and John Easton. Theory one, the original Maverick. Before there was Make America Great Again, there was the Straight Talk Express. John McCain has always battled, from his days at the Naval Academy to his time as a prisoner of war in North Vietnam, when he was a rebellious Republican pushing for more regulation on tobacco and campaign finance, when he almost beat George W. Bush in 2000 for the nomination, and when he won the presidential nomination in 2008 and almost beat Barack Obama until it all went terribly wrong for him. John McCain didn't always win, but he always fought hard. McCain has a particularly virulent form of cancer, the kind that killed Ted Kennedy and Bo Biden. Here's my theory. McCain might not beat cancer, but he will fight it with ferocity and with dignity. John Easton, your former boss, Kelly Ayotte, was very, very close to the senator. What are your thoughts about him and this troubling news? Well, John, I think that was all very well said about John McCain's career, his character, and it is troubling for a number of reasons. When I, when I heard this news, I was really saddened for a couple of reasons. One, his friends, his family, his colleagues, all I know are, are just shocked. And that is just a, a, a say it was a sad day to hear just such a, a tough diagnosis. But the other part of this that um, is, a, is a shocker is just what it means to the, the political institution here in D.C. in particular. I mean, at a time when you have such unpredictability and unevenness coming out of the Trump White House, you've had a real calming effect and reassurance coming out of John McCain being in the Senate, which is a little ironic because he's such a, he can have such an acerbic persona. But for a couple reasons, he has had that effect on the Senate. One, his vast experience, you know, and and knowing how to use power. I mean, he's been chairman of of a couple of powerful committees uh, throughout the last couple of decades. And, And he understands how to wield power and when to use it and when not to use it. And in and, and another way, I think he has, he has this courage to confront presidents of either party, no matter how popular they are. And I think that the, the combination of those two have, have driven the respect uh, of, of him uh, from his colleagues, but also from many across the country. And, and I just feel like I know he's going to fight it, and he's gonna, if anybody's going to give this a battle, it's going to be him. And, and I just want him back so we can, we can have him as a, as a great person back in the Senate, but also the Senate having that rock uh, that he has been. So, Adam Belmar, uh, McCain was called crusty by President Trump, uh, and he is crusty. I, you know, I, I had dealings with him throughout my, my career on the House side. Um, McCain also had a really wonderful um, relationship with the national media especially when he was doing the Straight Talk Express. Um, it wasn't such a wonderful experience when he was running against Barack Obama in 2008 because guess what? The media loved John McCain when he was undercutting and trying to beat the overdog, which was George W. Bush. But when it was their prized guy in Barack Obama, the media kind of turned on him. Uh, what are your thoughts about Senator McCain? Well, on a personal level, obviously, I'm, I'm very saddened to hear that he's dealing with this. We spent uh, many years working for the National Foundation for Cancer Research, and geoblastoma is well known to us as something that, first of all, you don't recover from. Um, it is lethal in almost every single case. And 
it is the worst, uh, as you said, most virulent form of brain cancer that you can be diagnosed with. So our thoughts and prayers are with him. I think that politically, they'll replace him with a Republican. But as Easton said, you know, you can't replace the man. He's a true statesman. He's an American hero. And uh, I did some work on that campaign. Um, I was at his nominating convention. I was a journalist covering him. He made a lot of careers, and they certainly turned on him. But that's the way the world goes. And John McCain's been on the good side of things and the hardest side of things in life, things that we can only begin to imagine, especially his time in captivity. So I pray for the man. I had a couple stories about McCain. One was when he won in New Hampshire uh, in the primary in 2000. And I was sitting in a leadership meeting with all the assorted Republicans, I think it was in the House and the Senate. And we started getting the exit poll numbers early on. And it became very, very clear that McCain was going to clean George W. Bush's clock. And I was somebody who secretly liked McCain. And so I was kind of rooting for him because I thought the, the Bush team was arrogant. And uh, and they had been brutal. They were about to get brutal with him in, in they South were, they Carolina. Were about, but they were arrogant and they were uh, they were the Bushies. I mean, and, you know, they, they a lot of folks were from the first Bush White House who I had no great love for. And so I was secretly rooting for him, but nobody else in that room was. And the, and the reason was is because McCain pushed for a lot of things that Republicans didn't like. Tobacco regulation, he had really pushed a lot with Ted Kennedy on Patients' Bill of Rights. He also was some, uh, somebody who pushed very hard uh, for campaign finance reform. Um, so he was no great. And, and the Republican establishment did not like him. That's why I kind of made the, the reference to him being before Make America Great Again. Uh, the straight you wrote, you wrote an amazing piece this week on McCain making a lot of these same points. And I felt like Donald Trump tried to be charitable using the word crusty, you know, trying to sort of depth with his language, even though, you know, he has no great love for John McCain and having disparaged his war hero status during the campaign. Uh, but I think the president has missed the mark again on understanding just how important John McCain is to so many. Well, and I'll say this. I uh, remember the, how the media questioned John McCain's temperament to hold that high office in 2008. Well, I bet he is laughing right now watching the current occupant and his temperament. Yeah, well, that's, do you have any good stories, John, about uh, interacting? Because Senator Ayotte really flocked towards Senator McCain, and they, it was kind of a triumvirate with, with, with him. Uh, Lindsey Graham and the senator from New Hampshire, your ex-boss, they all kind of became the, the, the rocks of the foreign policy establishment in the Senate. They, they didn't want to disengage from the world. They wanted the strong military presence. As the chairman of the Armed Services Committee, McCain is someone who appreciated the importance of a strong military, but he also was someone who didn't necessarily want to waste a lot of money on bad programs. As when he took on Boeing on the tanker deal, any good th- uh, stories about how McCain and Ayotte connected. Yeah, I think that what was fun to watch, uh, Will, and while well, Senator Ayotte was in the Senate, was to watch how John McCain was kind of the, the big thinker, the, the big leader in, in, that, in that defense hawk space. And he let Lindsey Graham and Kelly Ayotte be the sort of the, the prosecutors, the, what, the executors of, of the ideas, of the initiatives. It was, it was just a lot of fun. John McCain knew his role. He knew his role was effective, and he knew what to do and, and what not to do. And that's, I think, what has really given him that, that gift. But the other thing, I, it was when I was with Gordon Smith of Oregon, and watching how to work with John McCain was just be straight up with him. And when 
Senator Smith wanted to get something done through, through the Commerce Committee when John McCain was chairman. Gordon Smith would go to him and say, hey, hey John, I'd, I'd really like to do X, Y, or Z. And because of that way of dealing with them, he would almost give, always give it to him. And, and it was just really, uh, uh, like I said before, a, a nice exercise in power. Yeah, and he knew how to wield it, but he also knew how to do investigations from his perch at the Senate Commerce Committee. Uh, when he was in Indian Affairs, he did a lot of the investigations that yielded the Abramoff scandal. Uh, he really went after Jack Abramoff. It was interesting to see McCain, and you know, you talked about Donald Trump, and Trump, you know, made a crack during the early during the campaign, which I thought would kill him, and it didn't. Because it turned out nothing but kryptonite can do that. Well, exactly. But he made a crack about, you know, I don't, my war heroes don't get caught, you know, something like that. Yeah, I, I like the guys who don't get captured. Right. And, you know, for coming from a guy whose military service was kind of all part of, ended when he was in boarding school for Donald Trump, it was a real, really a remarkable statement. But it reminded me when I worked for the Speaker of the House, Denny Hastert, and Hastert uh, and McCain got into it, into it about tax, taxes to pay for the war. And Hastert wanted the growing economy, wanted to cut taxes, and John McCain wanted to raise taxes, especially on wealthy people, to pay, help pay for the war because he was kind of a budget hawk as, a, as well as a defense hawk. And my boss at the time made some crack about what does John McCain know about sacrifice? <laughs> and, <laughs> I remember this. And it was a big story, and I, I decided that i got to nip this in the bud. So I, I talked to an Associated Press reporter, and I, I said, the Speaker values John McCain's sacrifice during the war. He just has a disagreement with him on tax cuts. <laughs> yeah, you've got you to limit that right away. Yeah, I know, we had to, get, get, to get ahead of that story because the last thing I needed was a, a, uh, you know, a, a sh- some sort of a story about Denny Hastert's yeah. military service, which was non-existent. Um, but, you know, the whole idea of being a war hero was something that was everyone talked about with John McCain. But he also didn't wear that on his chest. And he was, he was smart enough and had been in the military long enough to understand that there was a lot of, you know, waste in the bureaucracy and that the military bureaucracy wasn't always right. That being said, John Easton, during the Obama years, you really needed to have someone to stick up for uh, Pentagon spending because Obama wanted to slash it all to the nub. You do, and and to have somebody like John McCain leading that fight is it doesn't get any better than that. He has he speaks from experience, he understands these issues, and he's a guy you just don't want to cross. I mean, I I've watched members cross him as you as you both have, and wow, it, it can go a year or two before you get back on the right track with John McCain. One of the things that I've always loved about covering John McCain is that when he shows up to a hearing. He is actively participating in it. And you know that he has met behind closed doors, not only with the people that are testifying in many cases, but he has personal relationships that transcend topics and go way back. And so when he gets in there, he knows exactly what he wants to ask. He knows exactly what he wants to hear. If he's looking for trouble, John McCain can go ahead and get into a conference room and find it and make news. He always finds a way to do that. You know, and a final thought on that, and, and, and to your point, Adam, and, and to yours, John, I was having dinner downtown Washington. John McCain had had an event upstairs of the same restaurant. He comes out of the restaurant. I was, I was downstairs by the windows, and I watched him walk out, and within... 
15 seconds. I think he was waiting for a, a, a car or some of his ride. And, and I would say there were 10 to 15 people around him. Well, just wanted to shake, star, it, just right? wanted to shake his hand, talk to him. And he was fantastic with these strangers. He just, yeah. he, he, he could have stayed there all night. The other interesting thing about John McCain, looking back to what happened in 2000, if you look at that team that he put together on his campaign, Mike Murphy, John Weaver, um, who was he? Uh, uh, Salter. Uh, Salter. And he had a couple other like big names as part of that campaign, and it was a name. It was a bunch of huge egos too. But McCain was able to use that that group, and they were the ones that came up with the Straight Talk Express. And he basically would talk to reporters all the time on the bus, unguarded, unscripted. Kind of the first guy to really kind of do that in in the modern era. And despite having all of these big campaign advisors, he kind of did run his own campaign, and it was a bare-bones operation. And if you recall, in 2008, he also had a bare-bones operation. He almost lost. You know, he, there was times with several people. I think I, I said the McCain campaign is dead when he ran out of money, and he was basically, I think, flying coach uh, in the 2008 campaign. Then he was able to somehow get, a, get, a, get it back, and he ran against Mitt Romney. He really disliked Mitt, Mitt Romney, the very strong dislike. But the other thing that's interesting about John McCain and the evolution of John McCain is that he starts out with the Keating affair, right, where he gets implicated. Then he goes and uh, becomes this big campaign finance hawk, angering completely the Republican establishment. And then in 2000, gets kind of excoriated by the Bush campaign in South Carolina. They said some very, very nasty things about him, all of which were untrue, all of which the, the, the Bush people themselves said, this is not, well, this wasn't us, which, you know, okay, whatever. But then eight years later, he becomes the head of the Republican establishment as the nominee. And then with Donald Trump, he's the only guy in the Senate who's willing to, you know, stand up for, you know, traditional Republican values, especially on the international stage, in a world where Trump is taking the, the party who knows where in a very different direction. Uh, John, what are your thoughts about how McCain has evolved, and is it possible for the, the 20 lives of John McCain? Where, where does the party go when, if McCain exits the, exits the stage? I think you just nailed it. I just think that John McCain has just evolved, and he and he's continued to evolve over the years. And it's one of the reasons why he gets reelected, and why he be he maintains his stature both in the Senate and just party wide. You know, is he loved by the the the, the right wing of the party? No, but I think I think across the board he is he is extremely well respected, especially for speaking his mind and 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 having that straight talk demeanor, that straight talk uh, approach. But I do think he's setting a standard, and he has set a standard in Congress that we just need more of. I think Lindsey Graham has become a lot like him in terms of being unafraid to talk to you know to speak truth to power and let's just hope there are are more that follow his example one final thing on john mccain and i only make mention of this because he was a leader in trying to get comprehensive immigration reform done throughout the early 2000 2005 and he worked with ted kennedy to try to do that in 2010 though he went to the border and ran a commercial saying we got a complete that dang fence. And so he was a smart enough politician. He is a very wise politician. One final story about McCain. The first time I really saw him in a leadership meeting setting, and we were battling with McCain on a bunch of different stuff, and all the leadership was in one end of the table meeting. McCain stormed into the meeting and went all the way to the other end of the table 
where there are like eight chairs between him and the rest of the leadership. And he kind of sat back and said, all right, what do you guys want? And it was, you could tell the kind of energy that he had, but also this bristling kind of chip on his shoulder, you know, anger at, at the leadership. And uh, those, those are raw feelings back then. Uh, but now he's like this big, you know, lion of the Senate who is standing up for all the traditions. And I think, you know, his presence is already missed. Theory two, Maganomics. President Trump won his race for the White House by focusing on the economy exclusively. He had a plan to address the troubles faced by working class voters, unlike his opponent, Hillary Clinton. It might not have made The Economist happy, but it certainly resonated with the Trump voter. My theory, Donald Trump will either be saved by a rising economy or destroyed by a slowing economy. He needs to focus on that and leave all the other stuff behind him especially the Russia stuff, as he talks to the press and communicates in any way. Anna Belmar, you showed me an article that was written by Mick Mulvaney about Maganomics, and you highlighted it for me. Can you explain what Maganomics is and what that all means? Essentially, the president's director of the Office of Management Budget, former Congressman Mick Mulvaney, has written for the Wall Street Journal an opinion piece that outlines the Trump doctrine on economics. And it it speaks to the things that must be done that are unpopular to get this country moving into a space where it's doing 3% growth in GDP on an annualized basis. He makes the case that we've made around this table before. He makes the case that the rate coalition and member companies there and Jim Pinkerton and others make all the time. Tax cuts of the corporate rate to make America competitive are a cornerstone of that. And he goes on, John, to talk about all the things that, that President Trump uh, has outlined these principles, and once we adopt them, we, we will see the growth that we have seen from the Reagan Revolution all the way through to 2007. Now, and I, I read the article. There's a lot of good stuff in there, especially when you're talking about, as you said, reducing taxes, reducing regulations, getting a good energy policy, which he calls an all-of-the-above energy policy, which I completely agree with. But he, there was also a little bit of uh, about cutting down on immigration. And I don't think you can truly make the American economy great again unless you have a labor pool that is willing to work. And immigration is, not only brings a lot of good ideas, but it brings a lot of good arms and legs and good workers. And one of the things that's different between the United States and Europe is the fact that we do have immigrants. And so if there's one thing that I disagree with, on the, I, I believe that we need to um, do something about illegal immigration, which I think is, you know, devastating for a variety of reasons and it actually does depress growth and depress wage growth but white house is talking about limiting legal immigration i think that's a huge mistake uh john what are your thoughts on how the president is doing on on the economy on the economic messaging and uh, you know what, what are your, your bigger thoughts on uh, you know what's going to make this white house succeed or fail in the upcoming months and do you dig maganomics i dig maganomics i think that he's doing pretty well on the economy. In the Wall Street Journal today, there's a story about about how wage growth in the lower income bracket is higher, had the highest quarter in probably 10 years, the last quarter. And I think, it, would you know it? Yes, I mean, somebody wrote about it, but we are so consumed by Russia. We are so consumed by, you know, the, the daily drip of, of scandals. Now he's talking about maybe he's exploring pardon options with the whole Russia uh, experience. I mean, he, he is really unnerved and rattled by it. 
and and if anybody noticed this, there was actually a theme week this week. It was made, made in, in America. Made in America. They rolled out on the South Lawn. They rolled out a bunch of products made in America. He went on the road, but the the, the media is just not covering any of this. So why why should they? Because they've just got all of this this, this mother load of of stories to write about what he's saying about the Russia investigation. Now it's killing him. The thing I, I would say about this is fake news that happens in the New York Times. How dare the New York Times quote verbatim what the president said to them in an interview in the Oval Office? That's outrageous. Um, you know, the president really needs to get his act together when he talks about communicating his message. You don't have to say everything that's on your mind when you're talking to a reporter, even if you believe it. But the one thing that's interesting about this president is anything that's coming out of his, anything that crosses his transom is going to get on his tongue and is going to be either tweeted or talked with a New York Times reporter, Adam. Um, thinking about that, how much damage does the president do to his own economic message when he keeps talking about how he wants to fire uh, Robert Mueller? The president is doing himself an enormous disservice by changing the topic constantly. And he is taking all of the energy around the things that people hired him to do and focusing it on things that are beloved by the media and consumed voraciously, but ultimately are nothing more than Kofif. <laughs> John Easton, uh, thinking about this and thinking about John McCain and the, the power of being unscripted, I mean, the, the great thing about Donald Trump and him being unscripted is he's always interesting. And I think about this in terms of him going out over the August recess and talking about his tax cut plan. And if he's going to do a bunch of barnstorming on this, my theory is that the president should never have started with health care to begin with. But now that we're in it and now that the Senate is trying to get close to finishing this thing, if the president did a Oval Office address where he said, these are the benefits of the health care plan, this is why we need to get it done, and you need – all of you need to talk to all these Republican senators. You need to email them. You need to call them. You need to mail them. You need to talk to them. You need them to get past this legislation so that we can get on with the rest of the agenda. I think it would be very powerful. Um, but the president doesn't want to do that. And I think one of the reasons he doesn't want to do that is because the health care plan is so unpopular. Uh, talk about how important it is to stay on message if you're a politician and to drive a message if you're a politician and, and the, the push and pull between being interesting and being effective. Yeah, that's right. He is interesting, and he's so atypical of a president in so many ways. What really befuddles us, those of us in the communications space, is that, yes, while he's interesting and, and yes, while he is getting covered for everything he says and does, it really is stepping on something productive every single day. And as Adam was just mentioning, I mean, you know, a, a good rollout for a, a product, whether it's health care legislation, tax cut legislation, is your advance work, your execution, and then your cleanup, your post work. And it all has to be done without sabotage. And what Donald Trump, I have not seen him do this without sabotaging at least one of those phases of rollout. So you have the health care and you're right, except this is now upside down. He should have done a lot of this stuff on health care, working in hand in glove with Speaker Ryan and Leader McConnell and rolling these things out. And that, and that Oval Office address you were just talking about, John, 
that would have been step number five out of out we, of 20 steps. Can we talk about that for a second? I, when you said it, I thought to myself as a guy who's produced Oval Office addresses, I think it's a brilliant idea. It, it gets me excited. But then I immediately, as, as, as a practitioner, I think to myself, well, hold on a second. Is it needed? Yes. Would it have made a difference? I think so. Probably much more so on another topic where there's more energy. But I'm also beginning to think, is this really the first topic you want to see this president sitting behind the desk addressing the American people on when we have so many national security threats, including, you know, escalation of fights uh, around the globe, the Middle East, the North Korean nuclear threat, and the very possible reaction of this U.S. president to an attack on the homeland? Do we really want to see him in this setting on, a, on this basis? And then I'm wondering... He's tweeting all the time. We see him, you know, on television doing silly things or making comments in a way that seem unpresidential. Is this going to be mocked? Is Could this somehow be used against him? I begin to, to play risk uh, mitigation when I think about the yeah, president doing Yeah, but think, think this. about this. The, the problem for this health care plan right now is that Republicans, who all should be voting for it, are getting freaked out because Democrats are saying don't vote for this. And what's hap- what's not happening is Republicans who are in these districts or in these states, are not getting engaged. And the president is still very popular with the Trump voter. Right. And what you want to do is unleash the Trump voter to lobby the Congress to pass this piece of legislation. And why this is important is because it holds up everything else. If they don't get health care done one way or the other— uh, they don't get the tax reform. They don't get the nominations through. They don't get the FAA reform. They don't get to a bunch of other stuff. It's so important to get this thing done and to the president's desk and sign it or declare it dead one way or the other. And either way, it requires presidential leadership. I think that coming out of the, the White House meeting uh, with Republican senators just two days ago, right. I, I believe, uh, the word is that from the senators who, who uh, attended that was that Donald Trump was very presidential. He was informed. He and, and he, he actually inspired. And I know that that you should come to expect that out of a, out of a president. But these last six months have have not necessarily demonstrated that, uh, you know, at all times. So they said that he he said we need to get this done. We need to get this done for the country, obviously for the party. But they need to get this done to the, for the country, and and move on. And I think that he he injected a little bit of juice in, into this uh, that has been missing from the White House. And I think, yes, it's on life support. I think it still has a shot because I think they're, the majority of the Republican caucus in both the House and the Senate do not want to be left with a dead letter. I, I think that's right. Uh, of course, we keep saying that. But we said this about the House bill, too, that it was going to come back, and it did come back eventually, and they did pass it. Um, you know, We were hoping that it would die so they would move on to something else. It didn't die. And I think there's a, still the same dynamic. And I was talking to a House leadership aide last night, and he said if the Senate, anything the Senate passes on health care, the House will take it and pass it within 30 seconds, um, which is kind of an exaggeration, but they will pass it very quickly. So it has to pass the Senate, and if it does pass the Senate, the House will pass it, and this will be President Trump's first big accomplishment, and it will be a huge one. But first, they've got to pass the Senate. Theory three, Paul is dead. According to a news story that I read on the Facebook, the conspiracy is real. Paul McCartney died in a car crash in 1966 and was replaced by Billy Shears, who looked remarkably like him, could sing like him, 
and could play the bass left-handed just like Paul McCartney. Ringo Starr was the one who finally spilled the beans and the truth behind the conspiracy. Paul McCartney died in 1966. Now, this is obviously another one of these fake news things. This is real fake news. I've been holding back my laughter and yelling, fake news. Thanks to social media, fake news is more prevalent and more dangerous than ever. Now, uh, Adam Belmar, I'm going to start with you. This is one of the finest of the conspiracy theories that I can think of. And this is, really could be called fake news. Uh, what's your favorite conspiracy theory? Wow, that's a serious question. It's a direct question. There's no running, no hiding, no evading. I'll be honest. My favorite conspiracy theory, when I dabble in them, and I, and I don't like to, but I've got two. I'm a, I'm a red-blooded American male. I am firmly in belief that uh, aliens have landed here on, on American soil and that uh, a cover-up goes on from the uh, 1950s or before on behalf of the United States government, and that even Donald J. Trump is not allowed to know about it yet because they're, they're <laughs> a little unconfident about what he might do. And then my other one, and I, you know, it's, it's staggering because we live through it, and there's such a disconnect already I see from my sons, um, is that 9-11 was an inside job, that the flight that hit the Pentagon wasn't, it didn't happen, and that there was a controlled explosion in New York, and that it was utilized for uh, political gain, and as my youngest son would say, Illuminati confirmed. Illuminati confirmed. John Easton, you don't seem like a conspiracy theory guy, but we all have the conspiracy theories that we most kind of are attracted to. Um, even though we know they're conspiracies. What are your, what's your favorite conspiracy theory? Well, obviously the Loch Ness Monster is real. I, I love that thing. And Bigfoot, probably a close second. But there was a, a time there where I couldn't get my hands on enough pictures of the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> really? Right. And and you could still tempt me with them today. Uh, see, I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's so much better when there's, like, there's pictures, pictures to look at. Sure. And we can see, well, it, you know, it doesn't even look like McCartney now that you point it out. It's just not the same guy, John. I've seen the pictures. Yeah, and I, I tell you, if well, you, did you know Barack Obama is a Muslim? Well, and you, he was not born in the United States. If you America. if you listen to Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, I mean, they, it says quite clearly in that that Paul is dead, and they talk about Billy Shears, and yeah, this is a, this is a real thing. But that's not my favorite conspiracy theory. My favorite conspiracy theory is that Lyndon Baines Johnson killed. Jack Kennedy. And this cons- personally? This cons- or had it no, done. had it had it okay, done. Okay, good. And this conspiracy theory was put out by one Roger Stone, oh. who as we know is a very close friend of President Trump. And he wrote a whole book about it, and I would recommend the book cuz it's fascinating. Uh, and there's a lot of unanswered questions about who actually did kill Jack Kennedy. And if you think about it, most Americans at polls, most Americans think that it was not a, a single man job, and most Americans don't believe the Warren Commission, and they don't believe that they, they actually do believe that uh, the CIA had something to do with it. Uh, there's a lot of unanswered questions, but this is the single best conspiracy theory that's out there and fascinating. And I reread the Warren Commission. There's a book on the Warren Commission that uh, was put out by Phil Zellico. Um, great stuff. And uh, that is the, that's the thing that they're not going to tell Donald Trump about. Easton's remaining quiet. I'm pointing at him. He's not not leaning for the microphone. So I'm going to jump in. Seth Rich, a Democratic staffer at the Democratic National Committee. You can't go anywhere online without seeing this on a daily basis. You know, he was murdered, shot in the back during the course of the presidential campaign. And I don't want to detail 
all of the salacious things and accusations and innuendo that uh, have surrounded the mystery of his tragic death. But it is a political conspiracy where some people maintained that he was assassinated. It was a political assassination. He was involved in the leaking of things that were you know, hurtful to the Democratic candidate, uh, Secretary Clinton. Anyone want to respond or say anything well, about and it? Well, if you think about this in the context of the Clinton campaign writ large and the conspiracies surrounding the Clintons, you know, you could go on the Internet and see about the 75 people that Bill Clinton, either directly or indirectly, had killed in, in furtherance of his campaign. All nonsense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All nonsense. But this is what happens, and I think that this, the, the dangerous thing about all of these conspiracies, and Seth Rich is part of that, is, you know— People die, things happen, and they're not part of some great cover-up. They're not great, great conspiracy. But people believe those conspiracies, and as a result, they have a lot less faith in the government. And I think that that is one of the things that happened with this whole Kennedy assassination, that people you know, blithely believe that the CIA had something to do with it. And that, that doesn't give you more respect for government. It makes you think that government is, and I'm not saying that I believe that, but I'm saying is that there are a lot of people out there that think that that these conspiracies are real, and that leads to a lot of problems in our democracy. Yeah, and I think that that there's very few things out there that can knock down these. Those who want to believe these theories are going to believe them and they're going to spread them, especially with the rise of social media. Social media gives that ability to either anonymously or, if you want to do it by name, really perpetuate these. uh, Like, like never before. So and some people just will not hear uh, some sort of authority telling them that, that this didn't happen. Well, isn't that, I mean, in some ways, aren't we by proxy talking about the Russia investigation in this idea that the president has said this is fake news, it's a witch hunt. And yet on the other side, even though they might not add up to anything, the constant drip drip about how many people were in the room in june of 2016 how many russians how many silly bad norris or boris and natasha russians were there we it's it but it's just there's always something more and then there's pictures and there's security video and this is the latest conspiracy and yeah. the idea that somehow Vladimir, so he's winning he's Vladimir, hashtag winning by making it a conspiracy right he has and vladimir putin has somehow secretly went into the Clinton campaign and removed any mention of any kind of economic, you know, recovery plan, making darn sure that Donald Trump won this election. I mean, I think the idea that Vladimir Putin, yeah, he probably screwed around the election and there's ample proof that he did. I don't think it really made much of a difference. I think if Hillary Clinton had any kind of economic plan, Donald Trump would have lost. Yeah, because everybody was running their own program, John Easton. Every, you know, she was screwing up her own campaign, making mistakes left and right. The Russians were had their agenda. There were so many concurrent things going on that to, you know, after the fact, try and look at it and say, well, this was the determining factor. And these three things together can be shown to have had the effect of bullshit. Well, the other thing that's troubling about this is that Democrats have no faith and rightfully so, I would, I would suppose, uh, in Donald Trump. They don't trust him. And they believe, they also don't believe that they lost on the merits. They believe that there was some conspiracy to take over this election and take over the country. They want to blame the Russians because they don't want to look at themselves as to blame. And uh, they also don't believe anything that Donald Trump says. So when Donald Trump says, this is all fake news, they think it's real news. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I think that... It's convenient to say that this election was stolen. That's a that's a nice place for the Democrats to go. But we also know that there has been no tampering of state election 
facilities and, and infrastructure, to my knowledge, to this day. Now, there was a lot going on in the media. There was leaks. There were emails and all that. But I think, you know, to your earlier point, this had more to do with the fact that the American electorate was very tired of, of Hillary Clinton. And there was a, a lot of, of hypocrisy that, especially these Trump states that where he won, they were tired of um, politicians just saying this and doing another thing. And I think they just decided Trump is going to give them a, a different way. You know, it's Friday, July 21st. And this week here in Washington, the president and the vice president convened the first open meeting of the election fraud, you know, investigative panel where everyone's up in arms because they're looking for every last bit of detailed information about who voted and what's their voting history and all of the sort of granular information that, you know, security and privacy dictates you don't just give on mass to the future campaign of Donald J. Trump in 2020. And yet, as the, the Democrats feel that the election was somehow, something happened there that wasn't right for them, the president's got an even better, bigger assertion that it was millions of fraudulent votes and we're going to find it. And now he's got a government vehicle to do it. This was a very, very interesting and weird week. The president doesn't pop up a lot of places live to talk, but he sure did on this this week. And that, that you know, that's another conspiracy, that somehow a bunch of illegal voters came, right. came in and voted, swung the election, the popular vote to uh, Hillary Clinton. It doesn't matter, President Trump. You won. Move on. And the other thing that I find, if there's nothing there on the Russia thing, let Mueller do his investigation. Let him complete it. And that should, if, if everything is right, should show that the president is free and clear. Now, I think what the president is worried about is that he's going to— The gonna, fix is in. Well, not only the fix is in by all a bunch of Democratic— operatives who are serving on this investigative committee put together by uh, uh, the former FBI director. Uh, but he also is worried that the, the uh, Mr. Mueller is going to be investigating his finances. And one thing that Trump does not want anyone to see is his finances. He is the least transparent president we've had in our history. Um, and, you know, I think that's troubling for a lot of people. I think that I think President Trump, as president, has a duty to say, hey, listen, there's nothing here. I, I'm happy to have an investigation. Uh, I want you to look in at all my stuff. But he's not, he doesn't want to do that because he doesn't want people to look at under the hood. And I think that makes people a lot very troubled, John. John yeah, and I think that with regard to the election and, and moving on, I think he just needs to take a page out of George W. Bush's playbook from 2000. George W. Bush won by a 5-4 to four decision in the Supreme Court on uh, on that case, Bush v. Gore, and they moved on and never looked back. So uh, it, with regard to who won the election, he needs to put it there. With regard to, to his finances, I, I think he needs to be more of a typical politician on this front. Put it in this box, have your people handle it, and focus on addressing the needs of the country. So we're going to conclude here on a personal note. Um, last night, I went to a wine tasting at a local D.C. wine shop called Decanter. We t tasted a bunch of different rosés and white wines. I would strongly recommend that you go into this wine store because Michael and Michelle, who own it, uh, know their wine stuff. They went through the history of each wine that They're we They're up on Barracks Row. They're on Barracks Row. Uh, great wine, all very cheaply priced, uh, but not cheap wines. Uh, you can get a, a great wine there for $14. We had this rosé for $14 that was... Very, very tasty. And then after we did this wine tasting at Decanter, we went to Cava, mm. which is a great Mediterranean restaurant 
great food. John Easton, you know, we've, we've done events at Cava. Uh, you know, what do you think about Cava? I, lo- I love the place. It's a wonderful place, a wonderful place to have events up on their balcony on a, on a nice evening. And they have a Mediterranean tapas. You can get a little. You can get a lot. You can share everything or have it yourself. It's just a wonderful place with wonderful service. And very, very well-priced food, very uh, healthy food if you want to go that route. And they also serve nice wine. So uh, I would recommend Decanter to get wine. Um, and we brought some wine from Decanter and brought it to Cava. And for a small corkage fee, we can combine both things. So I recommend that to you. Thanks to you all, and thanks for listening to the Fury Theory podcast brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB is excellent for business. Well done. Yeah. <laughs>